Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Bill McCormick, SJ. Bill McCormick is a contributing editor at America and a visiting assistant professor at St. Louis University in the Departments of Political Science and Philosophy. He wrote an article for America titled, Marjorie Taylor Greene Showed That the Most Brutal Anti-Catholicism Can Come from Catholics. I wanted to talk to Bill because this interview between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Michael Voris of Church Militant was interesting. Now look, yes, the conversation took place a few weeks ago, and we were going to air my interview with Bill then. However, the bombshell leak of the Supreme Court opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade took precedence. So we're here back to this issue now, talking about this interview between these two influential people. They do have a following. And normally, I don't mention people by names because I don't want to elevate or provide a platform that's, in my opinion, damaging. But it does reflect the polemics in the church. I'm not really interested in talking about the persons Marjorie Taylor Greene or Michael Voris as much as the subject matter that was being discussed and also who was discussing it. You had someone who's a Catholic that, you know, considers themselves a faithful Catholic talking to someone who's rejected the faith to tell us about the faith and what they thought was flawed in the faith, particularly around the church's teaching on immigration. And I thought that was so interesting because how many times have you heard someone cite the sexual abuse scandal as the reason for not being Catholic, for not trusting the church, for rejecting a particular teaching of the church? And in this case, you know, they were taking aim at the church's teaching on immigration, our understanding of loving our neighbor. And for us, when we have our privy to or a part of these conversations, how do we respond charitably to this? How do we ourselves answer these questions? I mean, we don't belong to a church of sinless people. We belong to a church founded on the body of Christ. And everybody in that church that's alive today is a sinner. And so who are we hurting? Who are we weaponizing the faith against when we talk in a way that says, because of the errors of her members, the church which Jesus Christ founded has no authority to talk about, to preach, or teach on any moral issue. I mean, when you absolutize things in that way that only the perfectly pure can share the truth, that means nobody alive today can. And what this also does is it looks to try to separate the sheep from the shepherd. I mean, Christ founded the church on Peter the Rock, the Pope. And who are we? We cease to be Catholic if we separate ourselves from the Holy Father and the shepherds faithful to the church. And yet, I do hear this in Catholic circles. And to me, that's just so anti-Catholic. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk with Bill about this. 
because I think this is a very common conversation today that people are using the sexual abuse crisis to basically encourage us to disregard the moral teachings of the church, whether it be immigration, abortion, marriage, euthanasia, the whole thing, you name it, economic justice, whatever the case. I want to make it clear, Bill and I understand the pain. In no way are we trying to minimize or disregard the righteous anger at how the sexual abuse crisis was handled within the church. No, we should hold our bishops accountable. We should hold the whole apparatus in the church accountable for the damage done. So I want people to understand, I'm not saying we can't criticize, we can't demand a better response, we can't expect more from our shepherds. No, we should. We absolutely should. So I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying is that we can't critique, that we can't be angry, that we can't challenge the church to be who she says she is. At least when I say the church, I'm talking about the people who botched handling the wounds of people who were victimized in the most criminal, sinful way by the shepherds who were to care for them. And this is where the nuance comes in, recognizing we're not in a church of sinless people, but that doesn't mean we need to separate ourselves from the church. And in fact, we need to be in a position of caring more for those who have been wounded, whether directly by the crisis or just wounded because of how the crisis affected their faith in a way that seemed to push them away from the church rather than drawing them closer to Christ. So it can be a difficult conversation maybe to hear, but we come at this from a place of love deeply for everyone, for those who have been negatively impacted, those who have been harmed, and for the church herself who is founded on the body of Christ. And I go through all this with Bill McCormick, so stay tuned, listen to this conversation. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe there's more that you could bring to this conversation as well. The Gloria Purpose Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast, and that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it, subscribe, download, share it with a friend or two or three or more. Please do that. And also you can support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Bill McCormick is up next. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purpose Podcast. Thanks, Gloria. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm very excited to have this conversation. At first, I was thinking, you know, why would anybody really be caring about a conversation between a person who formerly identified as Catholic and somebody who identifies as Catholic, and they're talking in a way that I find actually shocking about the church? 
And for those people who are like, what is she talking about? I'm talking about a recent interview between Michael Voris of Church Militant and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Republican congresswoman from Georgia. She was born and raised Catholic, but left the church and now says she's a Protestant. Mr. Voris identifies as Catholic, but the organization he runs, Church Militant, was instructed by the Archdiocese of Detroit not to identify itself as Catholic way back in 2012. So these two are having an interview, a discussion, and it veers into areas and topics, and they discuss the church in a way that I consider anti-Catholic. And people might be saying, but why should we care? Why, Why should we care about this conversation, Bill? Oh, it's a great question. I think there are a lot of reasons to care about the interview. I think the interview, if you're willing to give it a listen, to give it the time, you'll see that it captures a lot of the dynamics of the church, where the church finds itself in the United States. You have Catholics attacking Catholics. You have the deep pain of people as a result of the clerical sex abuse and cover-up scandal. You have people questioning the relationship between what does it mean to be Catholic and what kind of political beliefs do we have to have? One of the most difficult parts for me about the interview was Green's idea, basically, that the bishops needed to sign up with the Republican Party's political platform. I don't think the church should be espousing any party's platform, to be clear, but particularly to urge that scripture warrants this or that political party's platform, I think, is lamentable. There are a lot of things discussed in this interview, abortion, the things that she saw in Congress. But the two topics that really sent her in a direction of saying terrible things about the church started in the area of immigration. And then they used the sex abuse crisis to further comment on the church. So let's start with immigration. The topic came up because Michael Voris asked her, in essence, is a two-faced for the Catholic bishops to claim to love families, but then to also help undocumented immigrants settle the country. I mean, I'm using, I'm saying it in the nicest way. He actually, the way he portrayed it, you would think that the bishops were a crime syndicate taking money from the U.S. government and at the same time breaking U.S. laws. But to help people who are coming into the country legally, which is what CRS does, isn't breaking the law. But the way it's framed is that that isn't loving families. And Representative Green responds that what it is, is it's Satan controlling the church. And she said the church is not doing its job. It's not adhering to the teachings of Christ. What was your take on that part of the conversation about how it started in immigration and the take on loving one another and Catholic Relief Service's role in helping undocumented immigrants in this country? I think my primary impression was that this is a discourse of fear. Mm. There's a fear that if we try to help other people, we can't help ourselves. The fear that we can barely take care of our own families. So how could we possibly take care of other families? There was an either or logic going on. And let's be clear, there's a lot of grounds for real concern about the American economy, about the state of our society and our place in the world. I don't want to doubt any of that. But on the other hand, I think one of the ways that Catholics have always felt so at home in the U.S. is the U.S. has always been such a land of hope that we can always welcome other people and they will find a place here with us and can love and be loved and grow. And you don't hear that quite as much in this conversation. Uh, There's a real fear 
And my concern, of course, is that it's not an entirely honest fear, but that it's actually, you know, a, a political tool that if we scare people into believing that we live in a land of scarcity, a land where we can't love other people without sort of sacrificing our own family's happiness. That's not the gospel. You know, one of the most common lines in the gospel is have no fear. And it makes for a bad politics to operate out of fear. Well, well, let me ask this, because she refers to these immigrants as an invading army, even if they don't have weapons. And to me, that certainly sets people up to perceive these others as a real enemy. So given the framing that they've said, why is her framing of them as an invading army, you think, maybe not accurate? Well, it's not accurate because it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not helpful. I mean, Catholics have been those immigrants at many times in U.S. history. And we were spoken of in very similar terms, that we were this horde that was impure that was lesser than, there's always this kind of, I don't want to be anachronistic, but it often sounds kind of eugenic, like Mm -hmm. they're going to somehow pollute us. And it's very powerful language that makes these people to be able to dehumanize them and suggest that because they're not humans, they are not our problem, but they are our enemy. And it's, again, it's worrisome because it suggests that America has lost its confidence, that we are not a place that can welcome the weary and the poor and the marginalized, that somehow we are ourselves on the precipice of some kind of failure. Of course, it reflects a divide and conquer politics because some people will listen to this message and say, yes, we need to protect our borders, and some will react against it. And then you've, again, you've created a politics of fear that just divides this country even further. So in the conversation and talking about loving others, and painting the bishop's work with immigrants as not loving others because it's not upholding the laws and the rules was an interesting twist. Again, I think they miss a lot of the both and, but I think pivoting to, well, to love others means you uphold law and rules. I thought actually earlier in the conversation, she was talking about abortion, which at the time of the interview was clearly legal in the United States, but yet she talks about you know, that this being a terrible evil, how is it that people can talk about some laws and understand that they're unjust and others when it requires a spirit of generosity that those laws and policies then are seen as, you know, a problem that we can't go and help the immigrants because we're suffering ourselves, you know, this sort of scarcity notion. What are your thoughts on that? It's such a fantastic observation, Gloria. I think that a lot of us would agree that an unjust law is no law at all. But I think you're pointing to the selectivity of how we apply that. And I think for, yeah, for somebody to see so clearly that our abortion law and our the abortion regime in the U.S. is not fully just, but then to say, well, that's just the law of immigration. And to some extent, you know, it does go back to Nick, President Nixon and even before the in, invoking law and order and being tough on crime. And a lot of this crime language has been redirected toward immigration as though to be an immigrant were simply a criminal. So I will tell you one thing in particular when they mentioned in specifically Mexico and Guatemala as examples. And I found that so strange because we typically think of Mexico and Guatemala as Catholic countries. And so the very immigrants that she's talking about are our fellow Catholics 
You know what I mean? And so I just, to see our fellow Catholics as an invading army, to me, just harkens back to old anti-Catholic thought, (laughs) you know, about the Catholic presence in the United States. At one time, it was the Irish. Now it's the Mexican. It's the Catholic coming from Africa. It's Catholic coming from Guatemala. It's just mind-blowing to me that we would, even if they weren't Catholic, though, I still would think this is mind-blowing. But in a particular way, I think this is really interesting, recognizing that perhaps a great number of these immigrants coming in from these countries are, in fact, Catholic. Absolutely. And to be able to recognize them as having something in common with you is already to begin to acknowledge their humanity. And I think there, in some quarters in U.S. politics, there is a steadfast resistance to admitting to the humanity of immigrants, which, of course, makes the conversation impossible because you know, we should respect the rule of law and we should respect the borders of our country and we should respect our capacity to welcome immigrants. Mm -hmm. But when those concerns are constantly coupled with this politics of fear and the politics of dehumanization, it does no one any favors. We need more moderate, sober voices around immigration. But And as you said, Yes, so many of these immigrants, both now and in the past, have been Catholic. So there's Mm -hmm. a a funny way a lot of American Catholics have forgotten their own history and forgotten that their grandparents, their great-grandparents, however far back you want to go, were in that same boat, literally, in some cases, in boats of immigrants. And because they've entered the middle class of the United States, because they've become assimilated, they've really turned their back on what it means to be an immigrant. Then how did the conversation end up pivoting to the sex abuse crisis? How did it go from immigration to the sex abuse crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's really striking to listen or watch the interview and to see the way that Michael Voris kind of directed the conversation in that direction, because he asked Congresswoman Green about the spiritual health of the United States and of the bishops. And then when clerical sex abuse came up, it was actually him who brought it up. You know, you might say Mr. Voris is on the right or whatever, that he's some kind of conservative. But, you know, he's pretty specifically singling out not the Catholic left, but pretty specifically the bishops. Yeah. And Church Militant, of course, has a track record of doing that. So she was saying, if the bishops were reading the Bible and truly preaching the word of God to their flock, and then Mr. Voris interjects here with saying, he says, and not covering up sex abuse. And then she goes on and says, and not covering up child sex abuse and pedophilia, that would be loving one another, would have the true meaning and not the perversion and the twisted lie that they're making it up to be. That was like how the conversation progressed and turned to sex abuse. Yeah, you're right. He introduces it. And then she uses that as a springboard to try to redefine what loving the other means, loving these families means, these immigrant families means. And she also, in the interview, says that she represents the average person, that she speaks what people are thinking. And you know what? A lot of people rightfully are saddened, enraged, fed up with the sex abuse crisis in the church. And so there, I think it gives a, I don't know, like she becomes relatable for people Mm -hmm. who rightly were disgusted by the child sex abuse crisis in the church and how it was handled. You know, it makes you say, wait a minute, I kind of agree with her, but they take it a step further, in my opinion, 
and I guess I would say maybe weaponize the abuse crisis against the church itself, like the entirety of the church by saying Satan leads the church. I mean, so how do we how do we process this? That's a wonderful question. And I really <laughs> I appreciate your points about her credibility. Because, you know, every day it's so sad, but we're constantly hearing stories about bishops and priests and laity who hear stories about, you know, credible, some kind of allegation about clerical sex abuse or cover-up and don't respond to it, or worse, respond to it by covering it up. I never want to be the kind of person who hears somebody talking about their experience of clerical sex abuse and says, I'm not listening to you. I'm dismissing you. I'm discounting you. I think that's very, very dangerous for a church that is still trying to learn to listen to survivors of clerical sex abuse. So I, you know, I'm very slow to judge on that score. And I think you're right. I think it gives her a lot of credibility, which is really important. Part of what's so curious, which isn't the right word, but I'll I'll stick with it for now, about the connection between clerical sex abuse and immigration is there's a way in which, you know, obviously clerical sex abuse and the cover-up comes from an utter lack of love comes from mm-hmm. an utter lack of love and often hides behind the law and rules and concerns about credibility and authority and reputation. But it's hurtful, you know, it deeply, deeply wounds people. And so then you have this issue of immigration where I think to take a really strong anti-immigration position is also to manifest a certain lack of love. I mean, she explicitly links the commandment to love with an anti-immigrant stance, but then she hides behind the law, I think, and says we need to respect. As you pointed out, this is an area where she wants to respect the law and treat it unquestioningly as just. So I think if we're going to learn something from the clerical sex abuse scandal, part of what it should be is where are the places in our lives where we are not loving and where we hurt people? Very often, again, by hiding behind law, hiding behind this is the way we do things, hiding behind prestige and institutions. Again, I hear a kind of fear that because the church has handled the sex abuse scandal so poorly, it surely must be handling immigration poorly. And because the U.S. has these wounds, we can't do anything else right either. So that brings me to the point then, because I'm sure probably people think, but then why would it be wrong to conflate the sexual abuse crisis with any other issue? What's wrong with that? Well, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's wrong. I think, first of all, it would be wrong, and I'm not going to try to presume too much, but it would be wrong Mm -hmm. if you were invoking the clerical sex abuse simply to damage the credibility of the church. It's an ad hominem to simply say, Because the clerical sex abuse happened to the church, nothing else can be right. Sounds illogical. (laughs) It's deeply illogical. And this is such a sensitive area. I mean, the church always has to do more. The church must always reform herself. But it's a mistake to say that the Catholic Church in the U.S. has done nothing uh, about clerical sex abuse. Well, the thing for me when I hear that is I also say a couple of things. Behaviors of individuals, even many individuals, does not necessarily equal what the church teaches and believes. That's number one. And number two, how many of us in our personal lives do sin 
you know, which would be against what the church teaches, right? And what the church believes and employs us to believe and live. Now, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to give cover to the sex abuse crisis. That was a grave evil and a scourge on our church. What I am saying to people is, you know, if we see that others do sin, even others in positions of responsibility in the church, that they do sin, it does not then follow that the church teachings are wrong. What follows is that they didn't follow church teaching, didn't live what we profess. And many of us also don't live what we profess, right? And yeah, I I want the church to do better. We need to hold people accountable and we need to do what is right. But then I also have a period of uh, self-reflection there for myself. Like, why do I sin? Why do I do what I do? And how can I put the same kind of care and concern in my own behavior that I also want on others' behaviors. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think that one of the ways we can think about people using clerical sex abuse, the scandal as a weapon against the church is to pretend that one has to speak carefully here, but to pretend that one is not also a part of the church uh, who needs to do something about it. And as you said, one is called to self-reflection and one is called to repentance and mercy and conversion and you know, the church, Catholics, we're in an awkward position. If a celebrity does something wrong, he or she might disappear for a few months and reinvent, you know, <laughs> reinvent themselves and come back yeah. as new and improved. But we can't stop proclaiming the gospel. You know, people yeah. in the church have definitely sinned and we have to keep proclaiming the gospel. In many ways, of course, that proclamation involves love of neighbor, yeah. loving one another as Jesus has loved us. We'll be back in a minute. And one of the things, stepping back, the interview was between two Catholics, really. One who's fallen away, as some people call it, fallen away or former Catholic. Even though I'm like, she was baptized, so she's still Catholic. She just isn't, she's just not practicing. She's fallen away from the church. She's rejecting the church. And Boris, who is a Catholic, who says, you know, he follows the church and is a practicing Catholic. But what does this reveal about tribalism within the church today and anti-Catholic beliefs? I think it's first helpful to realize the way that Green and Voris, I think, were using each other. Green is a major figure in the Republican Party, you know, major in a very particular kind of way. But she saw this opportunity for a media platform. She definitely wasn't just speaking to the church militant group's audience. She was trying to, and this interview got play all over media. Sure. And of course, Michael Voris and church militant have their audience that, you know, they're happy to use. Congresswoman Green for. So there was a real way in which they were using each other. But this willingness to use one another as weapons against other people, there seems to be very little interest in genuine unity. Well, one of the things she says is that we can't have unity around a lie. She was putting that all the policy positions of the Democrats are lies and that the Republicans have been giving and giving and giving, and, and the Democrats have not given any way. And she says, as a Christian, that's not something we should ever do. So she positions herself as this believing person that she has to be stepping away from any kind of unifying discussions or actions because she says their policies are all a lie. And I thought that was an interesting take, that there could be no common ground on anything. Right. It's certainly true that unity has to be based on truth. And it's also true that, you know, 
the movement toward unity involves the movement toward truth. So I don't think compromise and common ground should be dismissed so readily. I do think that the prophetic stance she wishes to take is bold and risky because <laughs> the risk of false prophets is very real. And, you know, let's be clear, she criticizes Democrats, but she also criticizes a lot of Republicans. I mean, very much so. She and heavy critique of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's one of the things that's really striking about the interview is a real dissatisfaction, not just with where the U.S. is, but also with where both the parties are. And, and Green says that, look, the Republicans have had a lot of opportunities to pass pro-life legislation, I think the first two years of President Trump's presidency, for instance, and didn't do it. So there's a deep dissatisfaction. There's a kind of the fear and despair point in all kinds of directions, not just the Democrats. And I say that not to sort of show how bipartisan or postpartisan she is, but to suggest that a lot of things in politics in U.S. society are up for grabs right now. Huh. And so when we talk about truth and unity, yeah, those are important words to ask. But I think to some extent we have to keep recalling what are the fundamentals yeah. of our faith and how do they direct us toward politics? Well, that was going to be one of the things I ask you. What should Catholics learn from that discussion? Well, I think, you know, again, there are many elements of this interview that I think would resonate with a lot of Catholics, uh, even who would not agree politically with either person, that a lot of Catholics are deeply dissatisfied with the United States and where it's going. They are deeply hurt by clerical sex abuse. They are very troubled by failures of leadership past and present in the church. So I guess that's the question is, does all that lead you to fear? Does it lead you to despair? Does it lead you to desolation? Because you have a lot of spiritual problems if you go in that direction. You also, you know, lose the ability to make good policy and good politics. So that's a problem mm -hmm. at the level of faith and reason. I think that if you face this tableau of depressing stuff out there and recognize we're still called to proclaim the gospel, we're still called to love, that's the kind of hope. That's seeing the world as this vineyard of the Lord where he is still waiting for workers. Mm. That is not only more in keeping with the gospel, of course, but it also makes practical politics possible. That kind of hope allows you to see where are the places we can do concrete work, where we move beyond weaponizing every situation, every argument against each other, but really try to make some progress. And for a lot of Catholics, that probably means working more locally, growing where mm -hmm. they're planted and recognizing that we have to do what we can where we are. Good points. I keep thinking, why can't we have a spirit of generosity, love, and openness and of course, we can be reasonable about it. But yeah, can we have a spirit of generosity and what not a spirit of fear and anxiety? <laughs> That's a, Those are all very good points. And, you know, I wish I could talk to you so much longer, but I know we're reaching the end of our discussion. And I just want to thank you so much for coming and help, you know, sort of tease this out for us and give us some ideas to think about. And also maybe help us understand how we should orient ourselves to politics and political discussions and where our faith plays the guiding role more so than alignment with political parties. Thank you for this. Thank you for coming and helping make sense of this discussion about the Catholic Church and anti-Catholicism. Thank you, Gloria. I love your podcast and it's such an honor to be here. So thank you so much. Glad to have you.
I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.